Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Today we're reading from John 1, verses 35 through 51. It's on page 886 in your pew Bible. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked I'm sorry. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to Colossians. No. To, uh, I have Colossians written uh, in my sermon notes here. We might, we might have a totally different sermon uh, to John chapter 1 this morning as we uh, come together and pray. God, we come seeking you this morning, and we know, uh, Lord, that this desire we have to know you, uh, to see your face, is one that you have written on our hearts. By your grace, you have given us a desire for you, to follow you, and to know you, to know your love for us, and to become more Christ-like every day. We know that this is a gift from you. And so, God, we come before you this morning with our thanks and with this desire to follow you more closely, to know what it means to be your disciples, and to build our lives on the love that you have shown to each of us. Um, God, we are your people. You are our God, and we get to say that because of the love of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in, this, in the fall of 1776, right in the middle 
of the Revolutionary War, the Continental Army had suffered some devastating defeats. Maybe you are a student of history and you know all about the Revolutionary War. I had to look some of these things up this week. The fight for independence from Great Britain was always going to be an uphill battle. And for the colonies to somehow escape from the largest and most powerful empire that the world had ever known was seen by many as an impossible dream. And in the fall of 1776, it seemed that those doubts were probably going to become a reality. The Americans had lost several critical battles with thousands, literally thousands of their troops captured or killed within just the span of a few weeks, and the loss of the city of New York to British occupation. The Continental forces had been forced to retreat backward through New Jersey and into Pennsylvania, and it looked like all hope was lost. And as the year drew to a close, many were beginning to give up hope that the war could even be won at all. But on Christmas night of 1776, George Washington led his troops in crossing the icy Delaware River into Trenton, New Jersey, in the midst of severe weather conditions, to catch their adversaries by surprise early the next morning. It was a dangerous and daring plan. Yet, at the end of the day on December 26th, 1776, Washington had won a decisive victory in what turned out to be a turning point in the war for independence that inspired many to realize that perhaps victory was possible. Washington was credited with being a military genius, but it would not have happened were it not for a couple thousand battle-wearied soldiers who had followed him in carrying out his dangerous plan. It's a famous part of American history and one that, that, that makes many wonder what it was about George Washington that inspired such courage and such patriotism. Those who knew him would have followed him anywhere, even if it meant risking everything. For the Apostle John, that is the goal of the book that he's written and that we are studying together this year. He wants people to know Jesus, to know him well enough that they trust him and have such confidence in him that they will follow him anywhere that he leads. And so, here in the opening chapter of this book, Jesus has been introduced to John's readers. And nowhere else in the New Testament is Jesus described with so many titles as he is here in John 1. In these opening 51 verses, Jesus has been referred to as the Word who is God, the eternal being whose existence gives structure and meaning to all of creation, as true light, which has come into the world to cast out darkness, as the Messiah, the answer to centuries of hope and God's promises to send a Savior and salvation, as Jesus of Nazareth and a son of Joseph, a human just like those who read this book, as the Lamb of God, the one whose life will be an atoning sacrifice for the guilt of all of his people, as the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, who sends the Holy Spirit to his church, as the Son of God who is himself divine, as a rabbi and teacher, the keeper of all knowledge and wisdom, and as the King of Israel, who inaugurates a new kingdom and a new covenant. Nowhere else in Scripture is Jesus described with such diverse titles and attributes within the span of one page. John has crammed all of that together and one more in the first chapter of this book about Jesus. 
he seems to understand that first impressions are important. And so he really goes for broke in introducing his readers to Jesus. All of that with the goal in mind that those who meet him will receive him and believe in his name and follow him where he leads. And so what, in what remains of this first chapter, in what we're looking at this morning, verses 35 through 51, we have the first examples of those who did just that. They are Jesus' first followers, the first of many who would go on to become his apostles. And even though it's a straightforward passage, a simple record of events and conversations that took place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it is a record for us of the marks of true discipleship, the characteristics of those who follow Christ. Relationship, submission, obedience, and worship. And it begins with the testimony of John the Baptist, which we looked at last week. In verses 35 and 36 of our passage this morning, John the Baptist again sees Jesus as he did last week and again declares to his disciples who were with him, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, these followers of John's, they've heard him make this declaration before, as we saw in the passage that we looked at together last week. But this time, something was different. Because this time, they left John and started following Jesus along the road. They were not content to merely sit back and continue listening to John talk about Jesus. They pursued Jesus for themselves. It's exactly what I hope for in youth ministry. I don't want students to just listen to me talk about Jesus, because that leads to an inherited faith, faith that we borrow from other people. We might attend, attend church or listen to sermons or have Christian friends and so on, but if we aren't following Jesus ourselves, trusting in the gospel ourselves, then we're really just living inside of someone else's faith, thinking that it is our own. That's the reason I'm convicted that that is the reason that many who grow up in church, attending youth groups, will eventually walk away from the church and from faith in their late teen years and college. The statistics on that are troubling, and they indicate that almost three-quarters of young people who grow up in churches in America, involved with churches with their families in America, quit in their late teens and 20s, three-quarters. Because even if they grew up in church, they may never have truly met Jesus and followed him for themselves. Their relationship with Jesus has always been dependent on someone else, whether it was their youth pastor or their parents or someone else. And when that someone else wasn't there to prop up their relationship with Jesus, it collapsed. John the Baptist wants his followers to follow Jesus for themselves not just ride the coattails of his faith. So he is not troubled when two of his disciples jump ship on him to follow Jesus. He was hoping for that. He was hoping for what we should hope for, that people would know Jesus for themselves. And so in answer to John's declaration, these first two of Jesus' disciples get up to follow Jesus, though they don't know exactly what they're getting themselves into yet. They don't know everything they have begun to follow Jesus. And so Jesus asks them, what is it that you're seeking in verse 38? And their answer reveals that they don't even know yet. They call him teacher, and they ask where he's staying so that they can accompany him there. They want to learn from him 
not just about him. And that's the difference. Because following Jesus requires a relationship with him. It is not something that we can do from a distance or through someone else. If we want to grow in our faith, we must seek Jesus for ourselves. And if we want others to thrive in their faith, we must equip them to do the same. And just like these first two disciples, when we seek him, he will invite us to come and see. So they go and spend that day with Jesus, and then would end up spending the next three years with him as well. And one of those first two followers, we are told, was Andrew, the brother of one of the more famous apostles, Peter, who many of John's original readers would have already heard of. So Andrew goes to his brother and says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the one whom God promised to send. It is the answer to centuries of hope. It's a meaningful word, this word, Messiah, that is loaded with cultural significance in the first century. He is the one that God has assured his people that he would send for their deliverance. He is the prophet like Moses, as Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, that God promises to send to his people who will speak God's word to God's people. He is the priest that God promised to perfectly mediate between himself and the world, the one who comes in the order of the old covenant priests to be the great high priest, according to Hebrews 4. And he is the king who comes to fulfill God's promises to David that his seed will establish an everlasting kingdom whose reign and rule will never end, according to 2 Samuel 7, and who rules with all authority in heaven and on earth. For Jewish people in the first century, the hope of the Messiah was a hope for the fulfillment of all of the promises of Scripture. And so when Andrew arrives to tell his brother that they have found the Messiah, It is an announcement that has literally been centuries in the making. Andrew's evangelistic method here is not a compelling argument or a logical proof or a philosophical point. He points to Jesus as the one that God promised to send and the one who would set things right. It is enough, that announcement is enough to get Peter to come and see for himself what's going on. And so Andrew brings his brother to Jesus and an odd conversation unfolds. John records that the very first thing that Jesus ever said to this person he has just met is, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which John translates into Greek for us as Peter. It's a moment that is strange all by itself, that these two people who have just met have this odd exchange. But it's a moment that's made even stranger by the fact that neither Cephas nor Peter are names at all. Cephas is Aramaic and Peter is Greek, and in both languages, what Jesus calls this new follower is rock. And for us, reading the New Testament, here we are in the 21st century, we're reading in English, and we think nothing of the name Peter because it's commonplace, it is normal. But for people in the first century, this was definitely odd. Because until this moment, Peter was not a name at all. It would be like being renamed Sunset or Cheeseburger. (laughs) But in this case, Peter's new name indicates something of what Jesus has in store for him. Just as so many other names in Scripture have significant meanings behind them, Peter will go on to become a leader in Christianity, the very rock upon which Jesus will build his church. Yet, 
Peter will prove himself in this book to be an odd choice for such a post. He will be the one that Jesus rebukes most strongly in these pages, and he will deny Jesus three times on the night of Jesus' arrest. Peter is hardly a rock, hardly the firm foundation that he will be called to establish. Knowing what we know about Peter, we might wonder why in the world Jesus gives him this name. I don't think it's because Jesus was mistaken about Peter's character. He'll go on to prove later in this chapter of John 1 that he already knows all of these guys inside and out. But he calls Peter a rock because of how the Holy Spirit will build him up to carry the responsibility that he will have one day. It's a powerful reminder to me of the fact that in Christ we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 2, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even if we feel we don't have the strength to carry the calling God gives us, He does have that strength, and He equips those whom He calls to do the work He calls them to carry out. Peter is not a rock yet but one day he will be made into one, and Jesus knows it. Yet it was still, surely, an odd moment for those who were present. There is no record here or in the other Gospels of Peter questioning this declaration and this new name from Jesus. He simply accepts that Rock is his new name. Giving him this name, Jesus is making a promise, a promise that Peter doesn't even understand yet, and Peter receives it. He just became Peter from that moment on. Peter doesn't know Jesus as well as he will, but he is committed to following him. And following Jesus, which we see here and throughout this gospel, involves submitting to him. And that word, submitting, is a word that we don't like, really. It makes us bristle because we are independent and we like to make our own way Our country, this country, was founded by fighting a war to defend that principle. Yet, meeting Jesus requires us to lay our pride and our self-determination aside. And following him, being his disciple, means we get off the throne of our lives so that Jesus can take his rightful place there. Though I think that's often easier said than done, much easier said than done. Because Jesus often calls his people to do the sorts of things that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. We know that Peter will be afraid to be associated with Jesus, yet he is called to be the leader in the church and the one whose preaching will lead to 3,000 conversions in a single day in Acts chapter 2. Following Jesus means submitting to his call and his leadership, wherever that may lead. The next day, A fourth disciple comes onto the scene, and we are given very little detail about this exchange. In the span of one verse, Jesus travels from Bethany to Bethsaida in Galilee. It's a distance of around 70 miles that would have taken Jesus several days. But John speeds through those details. And in the same breath, he says, He found Philip and said to him, Follow me, in verse 43. It's the same sort of call that's recorded in the other Gospels when Jesus approaches Peter and Andrew and James and John. He simply walks up to them and says, follow me. And Matthew records in chapter 4 that immediately Andrew and Peter left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, it isn't clear whether that scene or this one here in John 
um, took place first because both involve Andrew and Peter. But it doesn't really matter. What does matter is the way that these guys drop everything to follow Jesus. They leave behind their livelihoods, their families, and the lives that they knew to follow Jesus when he calls them. And surely they were wondering, just as any of us would, how they would make a living, where they would live, and how they would survive. Yet they got up and they went. It's a response that's set in stark contrast to others who desired to follow Jesus, yet were turned away. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, three men almost become new disciples of Jesus, but ultimately do not. And Luke records for us that as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds have Birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is yet another odd scene, set of odd exchanges, but one that helps us understand another mark of true discipleship. To Andrew and Peter and James and John, he says, follow me, and they do. But these almost disciples from Luke chapter 9 do not for one reason or another. The first who says, I will follow you wherever you go, is apparently not interested in the prospect of a difficult and uncomfortable life as Jesus' follower. The second, who is welcomed by Jesus, hesitates because he wants to go and lay his father to rest, which seems to me like a very reasonable request and one that is required in Jewish law. And Jesus does not rebuke him, but he tells him, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, go do that stuff first and then come back and follow me. And the third says that all he wants to do is go and say farewell to his family at home. I think is another reasonable request. Yet Jesus turns him away, saying, no one who looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's a blunt comment to someone who just sincerely wanted to become his disciple. It certainly would not pass the test of any modern evangelism strategy. When our outreach team gets together to talk about how we can reach our neighborhoods and our communities No one is considering this sort of blunt language that Jesus is using here. Would not pass the test of our modern evangelism strategies, but the point of this passage is clear. There is no room for following Jesus on my terms. Jesus' disciples do not dictate to him how they will follow him. He does. We are simply not at liberty to stipulate the terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Human beings have a tendency to reshape Jesus' call to fit our own preferences, and then to be proud of ourselves for rising to meet the expectation that we've designed for ourselves on God's behalf. We would rather be the one who dictates the terms of our relationship with Him, but when it comes to Jesus Christ, absolutely none of us ever will be. Being a follower of Jesus Christ requires obedience to his call. It requires that we follow on his terms, not on our own. 
It requires that we take his word, all of it, seriously, not just the parts that we're comfortable with or that confirm our preferences. It requires that we declare him the king of kings with all the authority that that entails. Philip heard Jesus call him, and he obeyed the call. And what's remarkable here is not Philip's obedience. I think it's safe to say that if a stranger walked up to me or any of us and simply said, follow me, none of us would respond the way that these first disciples do. If we did, our families would question our sanity. In fact, the reason that we don't read these passages and think that these first disciples were insane is because we know who is calling them. What's remarkable here is not Philip's response. The gospel writers give no explanation for it. Instead, what they are focused on is the one who is calling. It is the Son of God whose word creates and sustains and who speaks with the authority to command obedience. Lastly, Philip goes to Nathanael to tell him about Jesus. And he says, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Philip knows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, which he summarizes in saying the law and the prophets. He is the one that was promised, the one who satisfies the hopes and the expectations of God's word in Scripture. And at this point, Nathaniel might have been getting pretty excited. He had been raised in a culture which was waiting for the Messiah to come, so word of his arrival would have provoked an enthusiastic response, or at the very least, an interested one. But then Philip tells Nathanael, the one he's talking about is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And suddenly, whatever excitement Nathanael might have felt evaporates. And he asks in verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a shot at Jesus' hometown. It would be like hearing that God had come to earth, to which people would get excited, and then hearing that he's from New Jersey, to which people would rightly ask, New Jersey? Really? Some scholars think that's exactly what's happening here. That's Nathaniel's problem, that there is some rivalry or some judgment against Nazareth. But in reality, Nathaniel probably just knows his Old Testament, which promises that the Savior will be born in the city of David, in the town of Bethlehem. And it seems clear that Nathaniel is a student of Scripture, since that's the way that Philip explains Jesus to him, as the one written about by Moses and the prophets. And so Nathaniel doubts these claims because this guy Jesus is from Nazareth, according to Philip's account. He does not know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem but grew up in Nazareth, and so he doubts Philip's claims. And for a second time in this passage, someone is invited to come and see. Philip says, don't take my word for it. Come and see for yourself. Ask hard questions. Challenge these claims about Jesus, and he will prove himself to be exactly who he says he is. And so this skeptic, Nathaniel, comes to meet with Jesus, who greets him in a very strange way in verse 47, as an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus knows that Nathaniel is earnestly seeking the truth. And so Nathaniel isn't rebuked for his doubts, but recognized for truly looking for answers. Is that how we think of skeptics and those who doubt in Jesus' legitimacy? Do we honor honest searching for answers, even if it means that those we're speaking to do not yet believe the gospel or know Jesus? 
And do we trust that when confronted with doubt, Jesus will vindicate himself? Jesus welcomes this skeptic, and he welcomes Philip's doubt because Jesus is about to prove himself to all of these disciples. And so, when Philip says, how do you know me? Jesus tells him that he saw him sitting under a fig tree. Now, scholars are divided as to exactly what that means and about whether there is a subtext or a hidden meaning here in these words. But what's clear is that Nathaniel, I think I've been saying Philip a few times, I hope you're smart enough to sort that out. What's clear is that Nathaniel, Nathan, there's a lot of people in this passage, right? Okay, so Nathaniel sees Jesus' words as miraculous. He's shocked by what he hears, so much so that it overwhelms his doubt. And he immediately answers, Rabbi, you are the Son of God and the King of Israel. He goes from about zero to 60 in about two seconds because he has sought the truth, and in Jesus Christ he has found it. We shouldn't be afraid of hard questions about Christianity or about Christ. Because if the truth is really true, it will prove itself, just as Jesus does here. When we reach out toward others with the message of Christianity, we sow the seeds of the gospel and we trust in God to give the growth of faith. Of the five new followers we learn about in this passage, four of them came to to Jesus because of the testimony of other people. That is how God has decided to grow his church on the testimony of those who know him. Most people who know Jesus know him because someone else introduced them to him, which is exactly what he will later commission these disciples to do full-time and what he calls the church today to carry on. And so when Nathaniel comes to investigate at the invitation of Philip, he does so with plenty of skepticism, just as those whom we share our faith with. Yet it is not Philip who convinces Nathanael that Jesus is legit. It is Jesus himself, just as it is with those that we share our faith with. And Nathanael responds, as all those who behold Jesus' glory do, with worship. He declares Jesus' authority and his divinity and becomes the fifth disciple in the process. Worship is the right response to Jesus and the fourth mark of true discipleship. Yet he responds to Nathaniel, Jesus responds to Nathaniel with a question that makes me laugh. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than, than these. If Nathaniel's impressed now, he better buckle up because before this story ends, he's going to witness some wild stuff. The sick will be healed, thousands will be miraculously fed, the dead will be raised, the blind will be given sight, and Jesus himself will conquer death. Nathaniel and these other disciples will see glimpses of Jesus' true power and authority and glory. As they follow him, they will see God. Just as Jesus invites people to do throughout his ministry and in following him to receive the light of life, not to walk in darkness anymore, to get that glimpse of God's glory. He gives light and clarity to life because he gives himself to us, welcoming us to know him and to follow him. And knowing that, we can understand why John has introduced us to Jesus in this way in the first chapter of his account of Jesus' life and ministry. He's tried to cram in as much as possible about who Jesus is so that we will understand 
why these first disciples would have dropped everything to follow him. But here at the very end of chapter 1, in its very last verse, Jesus describes himself for the first time in this book. And he says to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's a cryptic and confusing way of making a point about himself, but Jesus is referring to two passages from the Old Testament, one from Genesis and one from Daniel. In Genesis 28, a man named Jacob has a vision one night of a ladder which connects heaven and earth, and on it are angels ascending and descending. And in that vision, God speaks to Jacob, reassuring him that he will keep all of the promises that he made to Jacob's father, Isaac, and his grandfather, Abraham. They are covenant promises for God's people, promises to establish them, to protect and to provide for them, and to bless the world through them. And Jacob awoke from that vision and proclaims in Genesis 28, 17, and 18, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. Jacob understood that he had beheld God's glory, that he had stood at the gate of heaven, and that God himself would keep and carry on all of his promises. It's a powerful and memorable moment from Genesis, and Jesus is saying that in him, all these promises are coming true. And he does that by pointing to another passage from the Old Testament. He says that angels will ascend and descend on the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7 and to another vision, this one full of chaos and destruction and violence. And in Daniel's vision, he sees God, whom he refers to as the Ancient of Days, rule over and destroy the creatures who had brought such violence and destruction. And then he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus has been described here in this chapter in a lot of different ways and given a lot of different titles in this opening chapter. But here, the very end of chapter 1, Jesus describes himself by referring to these two visions. Because in Jesus' com coming, all of these visions and all that they anticipate is about to unfold. He is the ladder, the thread which connects heaven and earth, on which angels ascend and descend because he is God in the flesh. He is the gate, the entrance into God's presence because he is God himself. And he is the son of man who has been given an everlasting dominion, a kingdom which will never be destroyed. These first disciples may have understood that Jesus was worthy of their attention. Something about him got their attention and made them interested. But Jesus makes a definitive statement about why he is worthy to be followed. And his assurance to Nathaniel that he will see greater things will culminate in his willingness to lay aside his own life for his people. He will turn the marks of discipleship upside down. In order to restore our relationship with him, he willingly submitted to humiliation and shame. 
He willingly obeyed the will of the Father to endure the cross. Though he is worthy of worship, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the King of Israel, the King of God's covenant people who has come to establish a new covenant and to do so with his blood. He is worthy. He calls us to follow him. We count the cost, knowing that it will be hard, just like the revolutionary troops that followed George Washington into battle on Christmas night, we know it may cost us everything. But in Christ, what we receive is far greater than what this battle may cost us. In following him, we receive Christ himself, the gate of heaven, open for us to bring us home, and the Son of Man whose dominion and kingdom will never fall. He is worthy, and he is calling us to true discipleship, to relationship with him, unobstructed relationship with him, to submission and obedience, willing submission and obedience, and to true and passionate, joyful worship for having been given such grace. Let's pray together this morning. God, we are thankful um, today, thankful that you are at work in our midst. God, we ask that that we would leave this place, uh, having been affected by your word from John 1, by the declaration of Christ in John 1.51, that we would recognize the sheer magnitude of the gift we've been given, that it is not uh, the gift of comfort or an easy life, it is not the gift of prosperity, it is the gift of your Son. We rejoice in that gift this morning. We desire to follow you, and we desire that you would show us how. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen.